0: Welcome to Lazarus Theatre Company's new podcast, Spotlight On, where we turn the spotlight on to reveal the people behind the scenes, those who make Lazarus work, the creatives, the artists, the process, the creation. Hello, I'm Ricky Dukes, Artistic Director of Lazarus Theatre Company.
1: And I'm Gavin Harrington-Odidra, Producer of Lazarus Theatre Company.
0: Today we are joined by none other than Ken Pickering. We first met Ken when he was chair of the Marlowe Society for our production of Tamburlaine the Great. I always feel like I need to say that with some weight. Uh, That was back in 2015. Uh, Ken has successfully combined careers as being a playwright, a theatre director, academic, examiner and writer with over 20 published plays, more than the great Marlow himself, to his credit, and a similar number of books on aspects of theatre. He's also been a professor of theatre at universities on both sides of the Atlantic and chief examiner for a number of major award bodies, including lead assessor for the Council of Dance, Drama and Musical Theatre, which we will come to drama training, I'm sure, as uh, it's very close to all our hearts. Ken, welcome to Spotlight On.
2: Thank you, very good to be here.
0: It's good to see you, good to see you. It's been a long time, Uh, not only because of Covid, but just, you're so busy all the time.
2: Somehow we've been hibernating, haven't we really?
0: (laughs) Yes, yeah, well first of all, tell us, uh, how have you been keeping creative, how have you been keeping engaged and hopefully fruitful during lockdown?
2: (laughs) Yes I have, well I've been working with a theatre company called Reshape on a, a production of a play called Gorbaduck, which is a, a very ancient play which Marley would have known about. And so I've been helping script that and we've been showing it as a, uh, an online piece and we've been doing it in support of the Rose Theatre on Bankside. So I've been doing that and I've been compiling two anthologies of great monologues and speeches, one from the early English stage in general and one from Marlowe. And I've been writing a book about musical theatre. So apart from that, I haven't been doing anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: I was going to say, that's probably the most fruitful lockdown uh information we've ever had some people <laughs> you know a lot of people go oh, we've just been doing a bit of reading you know a bit of reading, maybe well, a bit I, of gardening
2: uh, supplemented it with doing a reading you don't know, have to go along with it but yeah it, it's been quite a creative time to be honest and i think to some extent the reading reinforces it you know and, and reflecting on what you've been doing over the previous years you think well it's about time i distilled some of this information and thinking into something a bit more permanent so that's really what i've been doing this year mm.
0: Which is great. I, I, I tell us a bit more about the these anthologies of speeches. Yeah, of the, of the early modern, but also the
2: Marlowe works. Okay, well, but I've always had this feeling that when people come for auditions, and I've done a lot of auditioning and I've done a lot of examining of people who have to do speeches, you know, they very often choose Shakespeare, and uh, that's fine. But you know, the, the whole of the early modern stage, as we now call it, is full of most wonderful material that people aren't exploring in anything like the depth I would like them to. So I had this idea, which is quite popular, of of compiling, first of all, an anthology of speeches, monologues, if you like, what the Americans like to call them, and and supplementing them with a few performance notes so that people can get to know a whole variety of, of plays they've never encountered before. So that was the first thing and then it seemed to me that really Marlowe, who is by a fairly long way my favourite dramatist, um, warranted well on his own because for me, he is the most revolutionary of all playwrights in the early modern theatre. And there are many unexplored parts of Marlowe's plays which I think I felt like bringing to the attention of young actors. And so that book uh, was published very recently too. So those two are to try and inspire young performers to get to know some of this material and not to go to the predictable Shakespeare speeches, which I've heard for so many years and have got frankly quite bored (laughs) with.
0: Yes, there's there's definitely been moments where we've been auditioning for something. What we tend to do is we we ask for texts that's not the actual play we're doing yeah one of the reasons we do that is we want to sort of see their variety we also want to see what people's experiences are or if they've done some research or if they know a bit more about the the context because that's always always helpful but we do tend to get a lot of the same I think particularly for um female speeches actually although having said that we have a lot of Edmund the Bastards don't we we get a lot of, you know, stand-up, I think that's because people like shouting, swearing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, yeah.
0: We get a few.
2: But you're right. We you're get right. F- the, the, the the trouble with with Shakespeare is predictable, and of course, there's also also the danger. But I, I remember falling into it myself because I was a very very young actor. I mean, a very long time ago. I mean, I was completely in love with the recordings made by Laurence Olivier. You know, of Shakespeare. So, I mean, I. I, I can remember now to my shame trotting out uh, a Paul Olivier speech, you know, at a, an exam audition. Well, I'm terribly proud of it. And now I realize it was as bogus as hell, really, because it didn't have any kind of inner depth or, or real understanding. But it, th- that is the problem. I mean, because Shakespeare is the book, and so often people encounter it, then they they think that's the best way to go forward, yeah
0: and we do have those moments where they they come in and you say oh what what would you like to do and they say um juliet yeah. or uh, edmund or you know uh, occasionally we'll get a hot spur and you go oh okay right <laughs> yeah, yeah. but you, there is a sinking feeling when you hear a uh, margaret or the jailer's daughter oh she's everywhere that one and, yeah. and there, there's a moment we go, oh god but this 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 book's going to be brilliant because there's so many fantastic, particularly female speeches, yeah. female characters in Marlowe that just have such tremendous complexity, depth, richness, that actually, I, I, I think you're totally right that, that emerging art, actors just don't experience them.
2: No, they don't. And the, you're quite right. There, there's some fantastic female material. And so what I've done in the book, I've divided it, obviously, into speeches for men, speeches by women, and also speeches that can be done by of actors of either gender um, and looked at them and looked at their context, particularly. I mean, I think the great problem really with Marlowe and Shakespeare is that there's still a sense that you're speaking poetry and and of course you're not, you're actually speaking dialogue or you're having an inner dialogue. And um, so there's been far too much concern with language in a way, although it's very, very important. And there needs to be a a much wider exploration of the psychological and meaningful nature of material. And that's something I learned when I was in the United States, where American actors uh, are much more psychological than British actors, to be honest. And they want to know all about subtext and motivation and so on, Um, whereas our actors, to some extent, still are a bit voice conscious and a bit voice driven, there is that danger. So I've tried to provide performance notes that enable people to think on the, the real issues that they're discussing and sharing with an audience.
0: And what a fantastic introduction. You know, So often I think with, with actors looking for audition speeches, they'll, they'll go and buy an audition book you know, monologues yeah. for men or whatever it might be, take it off the shelf, read a bit. And go, actually I, I wanna I want to read the rest of the play now.
2: Yeah not yeah. just
0: so I've got to, or oh, it feels a bit of a labour. Actually, it's a great way of introducing, and I've often thought that about the early modern canon, actually. If you ever want, one thing that we do as part of our social media thing is just pull up some quotes, some famous quotes from plays. Now, of course, with the Royal Shakespeare Company, you can go on there and there's plenty of quotes from each play. Yes, of exactly. course. But, but if you try and find a John Webster or a Dexter yeah. or, you know, yeah, sure a, a Decker, you're kind of lost, really. Where do you, where do we go to? to uh, and that's actually, again, uh, I've I've definitely heard from actors who have said, uh, oh, I saw that quote from the Duchess of Malfi, how can I know a bit more? Or that quote from the White Devil or Revenge Tragedy, whatever it might be, how do I find out more? Mm-hmm. And so actually any listeners out there going, oh, well, I know the perfect resource for this, get in touch because we'd love to signpost people to that. Uh, not only young actors trying to find audition monologues, but all actors trying to uh, widen their breadth of their skill, their repertoire, their understanding of it. And and I have to say, when people come in and audition with a non-Shakespeare, I, I, well, my face must say it all because it lights up and you think, yes, <laughs> we're cooking now, we're cooking, you know. Uh, it's so exciting.
2: And in the last couple of years, you know, I've directed and really created and directed two pieces, one called Marlowe's Women, which was a programme literally of scenes uh, by Marlowe's Women and for a single performer, you know. And it was amazing actually how Lizzie, the actress who who did this, and was discovering the most remarkable things uh, uh, in the dialogue of Marlowe's plays. I mean, people sometimes think Marlowe doesn't write well for women, on the contrary, he writes brilliantly for women. Um, And so that was amazing. And then now we're looking at this extraordinary play, Gorba Duck, which is sometimes thought to be a play that Marlowe and Shakespeare were lampooning because it, you, by, by the time they were writing, it, it was an old-fashioned play. But there are moments of wonderful paint in it and wonderful philosophical discussion um, it, it, as if it was written yesterday in certain senses, you know. So it suddenly leaped out to you and yet people tend to write it off as a, a funny old play you just learn about if you do history of theatre <laughs> will stop, you know. And, and what I spend my life trying to do is to make people realise that theatre drama is not a branch of English literature, it's a living art form that must you know immediately take take wings in the moment of performance. That, mm. that's what it's all about. You know? yeah. And so yeah, my efforts this year have been rather shaped to that because I've had time to think about it <laughs> reflect on what I've seen over many, many years, you know.
0: Yeah, taking the opportunity. That's, yeah, that's 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 yeah. been it. Uh, and I you just made me think there of going back to school mm. and very often, you know, studying a Shakespeare, you would just pass the book around, you'd read a oh. paragraph, you'd pass it on, they'd read a paragraph. Well, no wonder we had no idea what was going on. We'd all had a bit of a go at a bunch of texts we didn't know. And, of course, the teacher would give up and just put the telly on and we'd just watch a video or something.
2: Well, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I can remember sitting around in the school uh, with a, a book in front of me, and I, there I was reading, yeah, yeah, a pull to the bosun's whistle, rose do you blow your room if room enough? And, and, and this is the most action-packed scene in the whole of Shakespeare. <laughs> you know, and there we were sitting around the room, just about managing to read it. I mean, it was ludicrous, really. Where actually, if someone said to you, get off your feet and discover what's happening when you're trying to move around a swaying get, come, I've got somewhere with the dialogue. Yes,
0: yes, and, and just... Again, remembering those teachers who did do that or took yeah, that. Well, that or, I remember, isn't it? Absolutely. I, I always remember going back to my old secondary school and, and uh, meeting my old English teacher, Mr. John Hope, who's sadly no longer with us. But um, And I said to him, when you took us to that production of Merchant of Venice, you must have been absolutely mad because yeah. there was 30 of us all from the West Midlands packed onto a bus you took us to the theater on your own. You must've been absolutely mad. And he said, yes, I yeah, I probably was. He said, but you got it, didn't you? And I said, well, for the first time, yeah, I got it. And I said, what's that? What's, you know, thank you so much for that. He said, well, if only one in 30 gets it, I've done my job, Yeah, yeah, that's a start, you know. And I thought, how courageous, taking this bunch of teenagers from the West Midlands who wouldn't sit down for five minutes if you'd have paid us up and down the coach, in the theatre, out the theatre. But there was just something about seeing it on its feet. Yeah. that just meant, oh. And he, and I always remember him saying, but you got it, didn't you? I said, I didn't get every word, but I no, think no. I understand what happened. And I I I was in it, you know.
2: Well, what actually happened to me, strange enough, I've just given you that example of the tempest. And as it so happened, my... Latin master school school, um, decided he was going to direct a, a production of The Tempest when I was a sixth former And so he took us to the theatre the West End to see John Gielgud as Prospero in The Tempest. Now it's interesting because a couple of years ago I was commissioned to write a chapter in the book about the history of directing and I was allocated the chapter on Peter Brook uh, because I suddenly realised that when I was 16 or 17 I saw Peter Brook's production of of The Tempest. And I was absolutely hooked from that moment onwards. Uh, Now I've had a chance to reflect on that experience. (laughs) I Probably wrote something fairly central, I don't know, but the (laughs) the fact is that these seminal moments, they never leave, you know? And it was actually, now I come to think of it, a very spare, in a sort of, kind of bleak production, which was famed for its sort of minimalism and, and deal good, you know, Was there standing almost in the middle of a bare stage, just speaking these amazing words but suddenly the the theater seemed to come alive because of the the sheer emptiness of it you know it was so so sparse and it was very much now i come to think of it it was the the zeitgeist of the 1950s when i was growing up because you know it was the year of sewage crisis and the hungarian uprising and look back in anger and you know and rock and roll it was the first Elvis Presley film and all of that was happening at the same time it was a sudden feeling that something very disturbing in the air and suddenly Shakespeare said that to me you know, and that was because of a great production and a great way of a school teacher influencing
0: yeah and thank goodness for them well yeah. I also do think sometimes I could blame him as well
2: <laughs>
0: of, course, of course, of course. It's his fault where I am.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, a lot of people blame me for all sorts of things.
0: <laughs> but thank goodness. Thanks to yeah, Mr. John Hope, bless him. Yeah. So tell us, Ken, how did you get into this whole thing then? You said you were you, you know, were a young actor and yeah. you, and all this. So how did you get into this? And what was the sort of spark? Was did it come from those theater visits or okay. how did it happen?
2: Yeah, it, it it certainly came. Well it came from two things. Um Except my, my mother, who lost her sight quite early on, uh, and had the most prodigious knowledge of of poetry, and she used to read literature and poetry to me, and then then she used to ask me to read to her because she knew I was studying plays at school, and she loved it so much. So I got to reading to her. Um, actually, she recovered her sight remarkably some years later a bit. But that was the first thing. The second thing was, I mean, I did fall in love with Shakespeare, totally at school. Uh, Macbeth and uh, The Tempest were the two plays I studied, and I fell in love with So I always wanted to be a teacher. Um, and so I decided to go and train initially as a teacher, but I was so keen on drama that I discovered a, a course that actually trained you as an actor and a, a drama teacher at the same time, which was amazing. And the strange thing was that for my family, because we were rather strict and Puritan, we were Baptist family. Um, the theatre was rather a no-no.
0: <laughs> yes.
2: So yes. I actually never told them I was a drama student. Uh, they thought <laughs> I was an English student. <laughs> uh, the first real performance, I wasn't yeah. <laughs> because I, I never been quite sure what I wanted to do because I was also passionate about music. So I, I went as a student, I did drama as my first subject, musical So I learned the organ on a magnificent organ and I've always loved playing music and that's why I've written a lot of musicals or libretti for musicals because I love the conjunction of music at work. And I trained uh, as a, a drama teacher. And um, I was introduced one day, we were just doing an exercise, to speak uh, the speech, which is a dialogue between Faustus and Mephistopheles. I'd never never read it before, I'd never encountered Barlow, And that was my kind of Damascus Road moment. Um, there, this interchange between Faustus and Mephistopheles just did something to me, it made my whole body tremble. I was, I was so enthralled by it as a way of, of I'd never come across anything that moved me so much. It moved me more than Shakespeare. And so I vowed from there on that that's what I would do, Uh, be involved in drama in some form. And what actually I did do was to go for four years as a primary school teacher teaching drama and music, while I studied evening classes for acting diploma. In those days, it's a long time ago, because I'm very ancient now. Um, I there were there were these evening classes leading to these drama diplomas. So I, you know, I acquired huge slices of the alphabet after my name by going to evening classes and eventually was made head of drama in a boys' grammar school, which was the only um school actually grammar school in the country that had a drama teacher, head of drama. It was a revolutionary idea. And uh, got very fascinated by the whole business and did lots of directing of school plays and so on. And then, uh, well, in those days, of were called teacher training colleges and then colleges of education. I managed to get a lectureship um, in, a, in a college of education where I was incredibly fortunate because the drama department there was entirely run by the disciples of a man called Stephen Joseph, who was the pioneer of drama in the round. And I was absolutely amazed. I also was on the same staff as a playwright named David Hampton, whose plays I, I've always admired. And so, you know, I, I took every opportunity to direct plays, to teach about drama, but at the same time, there's one thing I should say in parallel um, to that, um, at one stage in my life, the, the grammar school I taught him was in Dover, and Dover is very near Canterbury, of course, is where Dover is where Marlowe's mother was born. And Canterbury, of course, is where Marlowe was born. And, and I kept visiting Canterbury and I suddenly acquired a sort of love for uh for Shakespeare, Marlowe, Canterbury, all that sort of business, that package, you know. And so yeah, I went over there. I mean, I, I did all sorts of things after that, but I after these lectureships, you know, I I did doctorates in theatre history and diplomas in elocution as it used to be called once upon a time and then in literature. Um I directed the mystery plays in English cathedrals. I I was part of a project where I was directing some of the best actors, Amarius Doring, Peter Park who in Canterbury Cathedral, in Birmingham Cathedral, in um great war empire and so on. And then, um, I'm, I'm dovetailing things, but I set up various theater companies, directed professional opera company for that, and then went off to the United States, was offered a professorship in teaching playwriting and uh, acting in an American university. And that was a fantastic experience. Yeah. So, well, that's a bit of my story. <laughs> <laughs> So
0: so at what point did you break it to your family what you were actually doing?
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's a good question. When did did
0: they cotton on? I I
2: think they (laughs) sort of cottoned on. I've been corrupted forever. Uh, (laughs) uh, And I think they were quite pleased, really. My mum was all actually pleased of of the plays that I was directing. I think she liked liked plays. It was just because the world of the theatre was seen as rather decadent and and so on. And uh, I, I... must say that I proved it to be not so. <laughs> I like things think right so anyway. Yeah. But I mean I've always because of my association with Canterbury, we've lived I've now lived in Canterbury a very, very long time and I've visited it frequently and I've often keep coming back to it. Obviously I've got particularly passionate about trying kind to of promote Marlowe in Canterbury and because of his association here and and the fact that there was a great deal of resistance to actually honouring him in his own city of his birth, you know. So that, that was very interesting. And then I got involved with the Marlowe Society, who are an interesting group of eccentrics and 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 others. Done <laughs> 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 two stints as chairman, you know.
0: It's it's fantastic. and, and thank goodness that you know I, I think you're totally right, but this this idea of uh theatre being decadent and, and actually something that a lot of um actors over the last sort of twelve months, I think when we first went into lockdown, we we reached out to all the actors that we'd worked with and just said, yeah. you know, what do you need? What do you yeah. uh what can we do to help? And actually so many of them didn't have an answer because they said we just feel I mean, I'm putting these words on them now, but it felt like people were going through a grieving process or a loss, yeah. and they didn't know what to do. Yeah, and and actually, it really made me uh, appreciate, and I I I would uh, defend this completely now in that that actually, in my experience, theatre people aren't decadent or self-obsessed yeah. or indulgent. In fact, they're pr- incredibly selfless.
2: Yeah, uh, I agree totally. Yeah, and
0: and not having the chance to do. Well, you might even go as far as say public service in for them to to storytell, to be part of a community has been really painful for so many. So thank goodness we we've seen that there's a glimmer of light in the horizon that they can start getting back to doing that thing. Yeah. Um, I, it's interesting looking at our, our friends in, in Europe and the idea of acting and theater being a public service. I'm, I'm really fascinated about that. Almost civil servants. Well oh, that's in.
2: right, I mean I've had experience of that uh, really through, strange. your family often influences you a great deal and and my son uh, got a job in Poland and married a Polish girl. So I've become very interested in Polish theatre and I've been to Poland a lot uh, to work, in fact I even did a, a workshop on murder in the cathedral in Polish which was bizarre, but I don't speak Polish but it sounded wonderful when they did. <laughs> uh, but, um, as it so happened um, for 10 years, I was professor of drama at Kent University, as you know, which for some reason or other, um, well, because of the original head of department, it specializes in Polish theater and and Grotowski and the whole world of Polish theater, which I absolutely find wonderful because it's so uh, thoughtful, so powerful, so minimalist in a way, it's uncluttered. Mm. And yet, you know, it is a public service. You know, the, 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 the way theatre is thought of there is it's a vital part of life. Mm-hmm. You know, It's not a, a, a luxury you mm-hmm. add on. It's something that is domain to humanity. Really. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, I mean, admittedly, since the fall of the communist government is rather different, but at one time in Poland, there were something in the region of 75. Subsidized theatres throughout the country. I mean, that is not the case now, but that legacy is still there. And there's a legacy mm-hmm. of understanding drama as uh, really underpinning the very fabric of thought and what goes on. Mm-hmm. You know. Hence, um, you know, Young cop writing that famous book, Shakespeare Our Contemporary. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, that's, that's how they see it. it, it, it this is not about. Um, a bit of archaeology it's about living thought now and that's what i i think um all theatre should be
0: absolutely uh, the the, the theatres become feeling uh, a space to, to debate yeah um of course you know it, it i often uh, lament in rehearsal sort of going you know uh, saying to actors you know really ask the question really pose the question yeah, yes. one thing I do in rehearsal quite a lot is say there's no such thing as a rhetorical question ask it ask ask the question of the of the audience or of the you yeah. know the, of the room the space the society yeah. Yeah. And, and it's one of those things I often lament because we know that contemporary audiences won't respond no so, so the the actor already knows in the back of the head, well, this guy, this director keeps trying to make me... But I know they won't reply. But but actually, when an actor does it, when an actor really commits to it, they might not Elizabethan audience shout out or jeer or whatever you might think they might have done. But um, there is an acknowledgement there's been a question asked.
2: Yeah, I agree. Yeah.
0: And that just lifts that. For me, that's the difference between we watch this old play and we clap at the end. Well, hopefully they clap. Mm. Um, Or it's a conversation, it's the start of the debate, it's it's something that you are a participant in rather than uh, some sort of passive, passive voyeur, you know. Yeah. Uh, it, it's a communal experience. And that's something that's been wonderful about being based at Greenwich Theatre where yeah. the auditorium sort of wraps around at least the yeah. thrusts of the stage. Yeah. So it I, feels very Elizabethan. It, uh, it and, is, it, it's
2: a, a, a wonderful theatre. I, I mean, I've been aware of it for many, many years and I've always loved it actually. and. Uh, I've, I always thought it was a tragedy when it ceased operating for a while, and then now yeah, it's great that you've re-injected life into it. Oh, one time it had a very, very distinguished theatre and education company called the Falstaff Company, you know, which was tremendous, uh, served a real purpose. But sadly, all of that service has uh, gone. I mean, I, I was chair for a long time of Channel Theatre Company, which was a theatre company based in the southeast. We were actually based. Like literally on the English Channel, you know. But we toured all over the place. Um about you know, all sorts of bits of research required, like uh how long can the great, great British bottom sit on a village hall chair, for example? <laughs> how long your production is because <laughs> we, we got funding for touring touring village halls, you know. <laughs> and so you ask yourself quite some simple question like that, and you say, but but it's wonderful that these things are there now. That's a part of theatre which has, to some extent, been eroded, sadly, you know, and channel eventually wound itself up just sheer exhaustion of constantly applying for the next project grant, you know, after having had funding for a long, long time to do regular work. You know, but there'll there'll be new life. I'm sure out of this current situation, people like yourselves will will, will find new ways uh, of creating theatre
0: and as you've done with your reflection having time to go back and go actually I better write some of this down actually I better put this together and yeah. do and yeah. that's that's been very much our thought over the last sort of 12 months is going you know what what do we think the purpose of theatre is and how do we make that happen and and I think actually you've highlighted one of the the biggest tasks is that project grant thing going from funding to funding Whereas, and maybe this is these are things we're exploring maybe we have to become a an MPO go for, as a portfolio organisation to give ourselves something something sustainable to say you've got three years to do this but it's still three years and in the life of an organization um we need to be thinking further than that so that's that's something for us to scratch our heads and work out
2: it's a debilitating prospect sometimes if you've got forever lasting got to be scratching to get the next grant you know that that is very very time consuming and and i'm glad i don't have to do that anymore at the moment
0: (laughs) my next question was would Ken would you like to do one of our (laughs) (laughs) I'd rather not if you don't mind (laughs) well we'll hold we'll put that one on.
2: Even if I pretended to be a Baptist or a Roman Catholic I don't think I'd manage it.
0: As I said earlier, we first met properly, really, on on and the Great in 2015, and uh, you joined us for a.
2: It was was, I think your your assistant director, yes, Josh. Yeah. Yes.
0: And okay. um, you joined us as well for the post-show debate, which was chaired okay. by uh, Terry Paddock, and hopefully yeah. we'll have a few yeah. more of those to come uh, uh, soon. Uh, but one thing I always wanted to... Uh, you talked a little bit about um, that experience with with Faustus and uh, uh, Mephistopheles. Yeah. But why Marlow? What was the thing that just...
2: OK, yes, it's a perfectly reasonable question. Well, I think there are three things that, he, that particularly got me. One was the underlying philosophical aspect of all that happens in every one of his plays, he seems to to me always to be asking questions about the meaning of being alive, what it means to be human. Even if it means being hideously cruel, but he's always looking at what makes human beings human beings. Uh, That's the first thing and I, I find that fascinating. Uh, the second thing is I think his stagecraft the way he uses a theater is incomparable um whether it's uh large numbers of people sweeping around big spaces representing you know literally great battles or whether it's individuals uh or people hanging from battlements or whatever they're doing I just think he's his use of Things like the aside of various levels of the stage, the whole sheer theatre craft of his plays are wonderful. And then, thirdly, but it is thirdly, but I mean, is the language which is so dense with magnificent poetry. Uh, I mean, one could go on and on about this. I I, I did once hear a a talk at a a conference about Marlowe and Shakespeare, and as you probably know, there's all sorts of extraordinary thing said about Marlowe and Shakespeare, but this chap said, I think Shakespeare was Marlowe's PhD student. And I think that's about right. I mean, I think wh- whoever wrote the works that we are to Shakespeare really owes it to Marlowe, who actually impl- implanted that ability to use that decosyllabic line and all those other things um, as a way of simulating real language. And the, the way in which this man can present, you know, the whole kind of dilemma of being alive within a single speech is to me just miraculous. Yeah. Uh, so I mean there are there are three things,
0: anyway. <laughs> oh, I, I totally agree. There's something there's something um I think that's the first thing is it, it's dense and quite a lot of actors find that um I think they find Marlowe a little bit harder because they're less familiar actually sometimes. Yeah,
2: I see the
0: Whereas they can, you know, you can whack on a DVD of Macbeth and sort of get the idea, and you've seen yeah. Anthony Schur or you yeah. know whoever it might be, and uh, but with with Marlowe, there's a there's a couple of recordings, and actually that's something we need to sort out. We need more filmed versions of yeah. archiving oh. these things. Not they mm. don't have to be definitive productions, but they can. We need more, far more perform, performance history. But when mm. they actually get through, and I always think sometimes there's a moment in rehearsal where it's almost like they break through the wall. Mm. And yeah. then they go, oh my God, it's all here. Mm, that's right. it's, it's all, and I often, I often talk of the text a bit like sometimes some speeches need a pneumatic drill to get in. Mm. Some need a light coating or dusting. Mm. Some just need a washing down, but all the gems are there. And it's so blumming wonderful. You must still get this, Ken. When someone realizes and sees the gems, the things in,
2: oh, you know, under make, the mud. My yeah.
0: Oh, it's, it's still, and that's where, you know, you've still got the bug. I, I, I've been doing a bit of online teaching, and, and when a student just boom, you can see their light, the light bulbs go on. Yeah. And with Marlowe, it's a big light bulb, it's a floodlight.
2: <laughs> yeah, and
0: boom. Well, it was,
2: uh, some years ago, you know, we did a thing called Marlow 415 and we celebrated the bottom of the pitchers. And we had the fourth well, Monkey Company came down here and did, I think, all the Marlowe plays virtually uh, in some form, including one in, in the crypt of the cathedral, which was amazing. But I was asked to work with the company for a bit of, on the text, you know. And I discovered that if you just gave them the exercise of finding <laughs> the insults that people <laughs> hurl at each other from the text, they, I said, right, just find an, a, a phrase that's insulting and hurl it at each other. And it was like throwing missiles around the room. It could it, be so organic this mm. this language, you know. Um, but I mean, obviously. You asked me why Marlowe again. I've always had this fascination, of course, with his association with Canterbury, and, and that is interesting, partly because um, there, there's kind of ambivalence towards Marlowe in, in Canterbury, or, they, or at least there was. I don't know if he's now, but, but one time, you know, there uh, there is this Marlowe memorial, which is a bizarre structure because it shows four different a- famous actors in four different roles none of which they ever played <laughs> I mean... <laughs> the research there, and yes. was, <laughs> the, the, the monument itself was unveiled by Sir Henry Irving, the great you know, actor, who gave this wonderful speech about Mara, but had never, ever performed Mara, ever. <laughs> you know, you know this it, is completely strange, you know. Mm. And so, I mean, I find that starting with it, what kind of... Is this that it's own the birthplace of this man? Can I acknowledge him with people who actually knew about it? it uh, very fascinating. So we did go to some traveling country this time set up a, a Marlowe Centre. Of course, we've got a Marlowe Theatre, which is um, a joke in a way because it's usually a home for big musicals. I mean, that's something rude about it. But you know, they they don't, although some Marlowe has happened there. but name. I actually remember in Canterbury where the old Marlow we've been through, I think we've got through three Marlow theatres now. The first, <laughs> I, yeah. the first one I went to was when my wife was pregnant with our son and they did Tamberland. <laughs> but well, it's a blooming long play to wait while you're... <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> and he very nearly was born in Tamberland. He didn't quite make it. Um But Perhaps that's why he's also a, a, a very literary character. <laughs> but, but I mean, they did used to do things in repertoire, you know, in, way, way, way back. And it sort of suffered a bit of a decline. So it made a bit of a kind of campaign to reinstate Marlowe in his own city. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been successful to some extent, you know. And the Marlowe Society, because it's now an international society. Um, so we've got people from all over the world and Ironically, now we are meeting these people for the first time because we're all zooming. You know, so it's bizarre to think that we've now got you know overseas representatives. There's the Marlow Society of America. There, there are, we have representatives in Scandinavia and Poland, and so on. We can now meet these people and chat Marlow, which which is fantastic in that sense, but. You know, there's a long way to go. I think. Mm. Well, really I, I
0: was always um, struck, of course, when you, you know, Shakespeare's got a whole town mm. really after yeah. him, and and I was always struck, and you know, we're we're based in Greenwich, uh, not yeah. far from where Marlowe's remains oh, are yeah. meant to be to be yeah. sort of yeah, yeah, yeah. scattered I suppose, and I and I I sort of actually stumbled across the churchyard by mm. accident, and. Um, but I found it deeply moving, just seeing the little plaque.
2: Yes, it's, well, so good. it's not
0: it, it's not little actually; it's quite big. Well, but, you yeah. know, I mean, it, in it, pretty it's it, in a sense, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah, and and just that wonderful line from the end of Faustus uh, uh, about the the branch not able to to grow straight before yeah. you know it was cut yeah. before it was able to go straight. But there was just this, and I and anyway, I was there, and I was in rehearsal clothes because I was on the way to a rehearsal room, and the warden of the churchyard obviously thought I was looking suspicious, and. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> okay. came over and, and chatted and um and we ended up sitting on the bench for about an hour talking and 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 the warden was saying we get people from all over the world come and it's very moving because yeah. and i said and exactly that really that shakespeare has this whole living um yeah a, a, a shrine if you like yeah because of the rsc yeah and all of that yeah and all the stuff around it. whereas marley sort of Blimey, and and the fact that he's there or thereabouts, I think, is the wording. Just think, this is uh, so so sad. And how do we how do we how do we do something about that? And I think it is about honouring that to start I with. Think so.
2: I mean, there are, there are all sorts of extremes. I mean, as you know, I'm sure you're aware there are people who think that. Well, I actually think that Marlow probably didn't die at Deptford, but, but who actually spent the rest of his life in probably in exile in Italy. That's my own. But, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to push that because, for, for often the corollary of that is... And, of course, when he was there, he wrote all the plays of Shakespeare. Well, I, I don't actually subscribe to that. Although, I have to say, I think the one of the reasons why I don't subscribe to that is I think some of Shakespeare's plays are so bad they can't possibly be <laughs> by Oh, um, the cats amongst the pigeons. <laughs> <laughs> but, but we did some years ago at the... Those been in Kingston have a a, a Marlowe Shakespeare conference where all the great and the good were there, the big, the really big noises, you know. And I really there were moments where I thought the roof was going to fall in mm. on us because there was so much acrimony, which I just don't subscribe to. I it's a waste of emotional energy. And you know, but, but there is some very interesting new scholarship about the possibility of Marlowe's survival and the fact that 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 depth would. Death could have been a fake death. And you know, strange enough, I have got a friend who works, I discovered for MI6. I didn't realize he did for many years. And I was talking to you about fake deaths and Marlowe. And he said, Oh, well, that's not a problem. He, you know, we've been handling that forever, fake deaths. So I mean, nothing you're not really actually saying anything remarkable mm-hmm. that someone that had a fake death and, and was spirited away. And therefore was there you are, the boat life right on hand, get into the the French mainland in no time and and yes you could well indeed end up in um in Italy. And and one of the things that you know we're looking at in the Mars uh, at the moment is some new research about the possibility anyway, it's only a possibility that Marlowe did indeed uh, write some plays in, in, in Italy. But we shall see that what is say.
0: Well, it not not to stir the conspiracy pot too much, but a student did ask me a week or two ago. Oh, isn't that I mentioned Marlowe's name? Oh, isn't that the one that was the spy? And and they said they reckon he could be Shakespeare. And I said, um, I don't know. And I, I'm not into conspiracy theories necessarily. So I don't, but I don't know. But you know what? I have a feeling he's such a great storyteller that he'd probably like the stories. <laughs> so actually, you can keep going with your conspiracy theories because in in a way, that's what keeps the spirit of. Yeah. of Marlowe alive. Yeah. So I I thought that you, you run for the hills with your conspiracy I think there's lots
2: of a way of insight and, and yes, I'm sure he was a spy because the records of his absences from Cambridge mm. uh, are well now well documented. And one scholar has analysed all the times he was away when he should have been doing his degree.
0: <laughs> and, um, what was he up to? Well, tobacco to? and tobacco and boys, perhaps. Um, it's
2: quite if you look, yeah, if you look at some of the events in European history at the time, which were very much important to our royal family, I mean, obviously, the great problem was that there was no successor of Queen Elizabeth, and also that you know, Queen Elizabeth was a Protestant, so two terrible things. You know, there's a whole of Catholic Europe wanting to impose. Catholicism on, on, on Elizabeth, and then you've got the problem of Elizabeth refusing to have a child, so we didn't know who the successor was going to be. So there's all that going on, and so she was always in peril for one reason or another. So she certainly did need a, a huge secret network to support her. Um, so you can, in fact, assume, assume that someone as bright as Marlowe was the kind of character who would indeed be able to infiltrate uh Jesuit colleges and all the sorts of things that we think he did. But certainly he has got a, a huge knowledge of uh, languages and things that are obvious, you know. But yeah, yeah, you do have to disentangle all that from the quality of the plays, which as far as I'm concerned, what what really matters. But yeah, there's a lot of fascination. And I mean in America there is actually a society called Marlow Lives.
0: He's in Texas somewhere, Blimey. <laughs> yeah. 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 You know, you're talking about the spy thing. It always yeah. makes me think of Titania. she says to Oberon, she says something along the lines of, but I know that thou hast stolen from Fairyland. I know, knowing meaning intelligence. And Mm. I always think that's very, very, there's something really wonderful about this. Queen Elizabeth, I know what you're all doing. It's quite thrilling and quite frightening. Um, One thing that I always notice, Ken, and you may agree or disagree on this one, but I always think, you know, I'm asked occasionally what's the difference in Marlowe and and Shakespeare. And I always often get the sense that Marlowe wants us to see it and Shakespeare maybe just wants us to hear so there's something sensorily different about it and I wondered what you well firstly whether you agree or disagree and obviously I will I will heed whatever you say but I just wondered what do you think the main challenges are when we're presenting Marlowe in performance um what would you would you agree it's about seeing things or hearing things but but also what do you think are the challenges of of presenting yeah well I
2: think the three major, I, I keep doing TV3s, that, that's the trinity in me anyway. Um, <laughs> I think the first thing about Marlow, the, the problem he presents is the length of some of the dialogues and speeches. I mean, they are massive. If you look at them, and I, I noticed this when I was compiling this book of monologues and speeches, you know, these are of a massive size. Mm. And so it's sustaining the energy and the attention span of an audience. You know, I mean, let's face it, said the theatre is for modern man in a hurry. <laughs> mm. But you can't be modern man in a hurry when you're listening to <laughs> Um, Really, you know, you've got to be pretty ruthless. Mm. So but that's the, the first challenge, is the sheer scale of the language, the, the, the sheer length of it. I mean, for example, there's a a speech in Dido Queen of Carthage where they're just reflecting on what has happened. Well, it's, you know, several pages long. I remember
0: rehearsing that, Ken, and I can totally, totally agree with you. It's a long one.
2: These are almost indigestible. Mm. And, you know, the fact is we live in a new age. I mean, my great-grandparents were strict Baptists, they would happily listen to an hour and a half sermon on a Sunday. Now, if you go to church and the preacher preaches for 20 minutes, people would start getting fidgety. <laughs> you know. So yeah, you know, we, we live in a much more compact place. That's the first thing. Mm-hmm. I think the second thing is the sheer scale of the, the, the physical movement of the thing. It, it's as if the whole thing is swarming over a vast arena. And I find Shakespeare more economical than that. Mm. Shakespeare is more delicate in structures. The, the scene's often shorter. And it, even, the, even the big battle scenes in Shakespeare go from boom, 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 boom. You, you, can, you can go on and off. I mean, obviously they're written for people going round and in and in that entrance and out that entrance. Whereas Marlowe, it's as if great armies are sweeping across continents, you know? <laughs> It's a different feeling mm. for me anyway. Mm. And then I think thirdly, there's the, the sense, yeah, that, that in in Marlowe, you are you are listening to rhetoric in a way. Mm. It's as if you are, I don't know, you're attending not only a theater at the theatrical event, but also a lecture sometimes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this is difficult again for modern audiences because we're not good at being lectured to. Um, whereas Shakespeare, these are more delicate fragments, you know. Now, you could argue, if if we really believe, if anyone actually believes, that actually Marlowe wrote Shakespeare, that, you know, the, the, the suffering that he endured changed him, so that he wrote more economically. I mean, there are, when people say, oh, but nothing like Shakespeare, nothing like Marlowe, nothing like Shakespeare, I say, yeah, but people do change in their lives, you know. But I'm not trying to reinforce that argument, but there, there are, I think, very considerable differences. For me, the problem with Shakespeare uh, is very often actually knowing what's going on. Um, there are so many plays, and I'm sure you've directed more than I have of these, but there are so many plays, very often comedies, where the opening scenes are sort of short, short sharp exchanges, which are supposed to explain the plot. Mm. And to be honest, I sometimes sit there and think, I think I've not a faint idea of what's going on. <laughs> and I'm prepared to admit that as a as a so-called professor of drama, I've sat in the through and thought, I have no idea what you're talking about. Um and to be honest, when I go <laughs> I go and see because <laughs> one of the things I now have to do is to go around drama schools and dance schools as an inspector, seeing the quality of their training. And, and I sometimes think, you have no clue what you're talking about, have you? you know. It's worrying, you know, it really is. But but that's because it's so complex. Mm. If you look at, you know, look at on the page, it's sort of, whereas usually the Marlowe's big slabs, you know, the Shakespeare's little bits and pieces. And I
0: suppose then with the big slab of text, then it's it's it really is that. Actor has to have the energy, yeah, and sure. scale to to. Mm-hmm. Well, I was about to say to get through it, but yeah. but more than to get through of it, course, to, to pull it right. out and play exactly, it. yeah, yeah. And yeah. I wonder whether that's something about. Um, well, we'll we'll maybe we'll talk a bit a bit about training in a moment. Just just that actually very often I, uh, we find that actors become exhausted quite quickly in the play. And I, th- I actually you've just made me think, yes, there is an economy maybe in Shakespeare of in, out, particularly with, with um, lengths of scenes, at least yeah. it's less likely to get bored. But it really, but I do think it puts the power back in the actor's hands when they've got the slab the actor then is having that conversation with the audience particularly at the beginning of the play
2: i agree though. i mean i i enjoyed enormously directing um as you like it in the states I, I i was asked to direct that play and of course Rosalind in as you like it has more lines than hamlet does in hamlet it's an enormous lot, mm. um and that i found that very fascinating dealing with a a, a performer who was having to in encapsulate this vast amount of language and um, all sorts of complex language, you know. So there are Shakespeare plays that make that demand and, and mm. the sustaining of the energy is, you're quite right, is, is the key thing there. You know? How how does Robin keep all that going for that long amount of material that he has to learn, you know. Now that found it very fascinating because that was one of my experiences of directing in an American theater where the uh, performers were very psychological in their approach to things but I tell you what did that stun stunned me which we had auditions um one week and um I found my role in pretty quickly I thought yeah you're the person you showed up at the first rehearsal word perfect off the book I mean <laughs> a week later unbelievable oh, I mean yeah. I've never encountered that in in the UK, ever? I just <laughs> did not decided. <me> <laughs> well, that's that's
0: it. Uh, we often find that the the actors with the smallest amount of text are the last ones to be off book. Yes, actually. oh but
2: well, it was actually of that day. To be
0: honest, yeah, you sort of go, hang on a minute. <laughs>
2: yeah, but I suppose
0: the lines, yeah, I suppose the pressure's off a bit, though. I suppose is well, they no, think I'll do know. it tomorrow. I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it tomorrow. Yeah, you
2: exactly know. Right, if you know you've got a huge thing. Gird up your loins, as it were, and in you go. Mm. You you got into it, (laughs) Ken. What's I'm going to put you on the ropes a bit here? Yeah.
0: What's your favourite Marlowe play or character?
2: Okay. Well, my favourite Marlowe play is undoubtedly Doctor Faustus, and um, I think he is my favourite character as well. Um, I mean, I don't sympathise with him. I think he's a foolish man in some (laughs) ways. Yes. Uh, and I wouldn't advocate selling my soul to the devil to anybody, but <laughs> what I do find about him is that his, his intellectual qualities, which I've I've always been fascinated by intellectual qualities. I don't want to sound like an academic snob, but I mean I, I do value literacy and all those things. Um, the way in which he uh, kind of uses his intellect to interrogate the world and the universe and to try to rebel against the idea of of guilt and so on. I, I do find it fascinating and I personally find his exchanges with Jeff to be the most rewarding scene of any drama I've ever been involved in and I mean that I go back to where I started that's where I fell in love with it when I was casting mm. As, as a drama student, and I thought, good God, this is amazing. Uh, and these kind of, the way that Mephistopheles responds in, in, the, in the, some of the uh, exchanges about the idea of hell, are, are just amazing. And, you know, for me, there's this moment where Mephistopheles says, you know, why this is hell, nor are we out of it. And I think to myself, yeah, I've been there. You know, hell is not some fiction that we we create it very often. You know. We so, um we we
0: actually spent last week with uh, Faustus and Mephistopheles. We did a bit of R and D for a oh. prospective production of Doctor Faustus, and we we looked at that scene quite heavily. And and uh, yes, it it's actually quite chilling. Yeah. It did. Uh, there is what does it what does he say there's something along the lines of there's heaven and everywhere else under it is hell yeah
2: yeah that's right.
0: um yeah. everything below the heavens and and you, it did, and the way that um the actor played that and just left a nice nice what i would call a pinter pause after yeah. that full stop was quite shuddery you know you thought oh, yeah. oh, 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 oh this is Oh, this. it is it is and, and when he
2: says figures are who you know it's all the face of god and not you know, tormented with ten thousand hells for being deprived of everlasting bliss. Yeah. You know, just the, the idea. That, don't you understand? You know that I, I once saw the face of God, and now I've deprived of it. Don't you think I'm in hell? You know. Yeah. <laughs> um, so pain, isn't there? The, uh, the word, the the pain. The that... way that works together is just
0: remarkable. I and I was I think there's something interesting as well about Faustus in that. Um, as a character that it would be very easy perhaps to make him a contemporary symbol of everything that the liberal left sort of despises. But actually uh, one thing that I thought was a bit more fruitful last week was when we treated him almost like an everyman And and so that we 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 didn't put on a certain type of phone that he used or a certain type of suit or any of that, and we just played with this idea that he was the Everyman. We could all fall in this into this thing, oh, and um, we all do.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting you say that because I mean, my, my other favourite play is Everyman.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I,
2: I play death in Everyman in Hereford Cathedral. Oh, you've been typecast, Ken, aren't yeah. you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hardly a cheerful uh, version of myself, but yeah, um, I've always found acting in cathedrals are particularly interesting. I mean, I am I, the last English actor to have been murdered in the cathedral in Canterbury because I would played Beckett in murder in the cathedral in, in, in Canterbury. Too. Uh, I'll tell you a funny story about that, could Um Okay, so some years ago, they had the Lambeth Conference, where all the bishops from all over the world from the Anglican Union come to Canterbury. And it was decided that they would do a production of Murder in the Cathedral, eliot which of course was written for Canterbury Cathedral in 1936. And actually uh, we had some funding because I, my college at the University of Kent is Eliot College, so, you know, there's a big area. Okay, so um, I performed and one night the entire audience was made up of bishops and archbishops, the entire audience. And I had to preach a sermon to all these, all these bishops, there's me preaching them. They're dear children of God, you know, and I preach. <laughs> and then um, we decided that um, we weren't gonna have any applause afterwards. There would be no curtain call or anything. So the play ended. And um we just went away and got changed, and quietly I stepped out into the precinct of the cathedral where all these bishops were still hanging around, you know. And there was a, load of, a, a clutch of English bishops, you know, archbishops and things, and they looked at me in that the sort of way. Only Englishmen go, you know, no acknowledgement. No you know, then I went past a group of American bishops and they said, he is risen. Incredible, you know. But anyway, that was an extraordinary experience. But in, in a way, um, what Eliot did was to I think borrow from every man and some of the productions there'd been of every man in cathedral, some of it happened to not all, but you know, that, that's my other great thing. You know, I have written this so-called standard book on the Canterbury plays, because, you know, Eliot and John Maysfield and Dorothy Sayers and Christopher Fry, Laurie Lee, all wrote plays for Canterbury during, between 1928 and sort of 1940, there was always a Canterbury play. Um, Sadly, it's ended now as a tradition, although there was an attempt a few years ago to revive it, that was a bit of a disaster. But, you know, it's a very fascinating part of it. And the way, all of these plays are kind of paid by morality plays like Man, but also are in themselves morality plays, I suppose, and they work in alternative spaces like The fingers, you know, which, is, which are fiendishly difficult in some ways, because they're acoustic, and I, you, know, you, can, you can well imagine. <laughs> but some of the settings are fantastic. You know.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I I I think there's something about that 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 um we as an audience can sort of i you know it's very easy to say that we have to see ourselves in the the actor or the character all the time, but actually the the that contemporary morality story goes, we're we're all susceptible to this, or we all could be. And and again, going back to that line we're all we are in this why this is hell. we, yeah. we sort of looked around the rehearsal room and sort of went yeah, we sort of are, aren't we? And what are we going to do about that? And that could be uh, politics, that could be our personal oh, no. lives, that could oh, be all of those things, couldn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, we're running out of time, but I must ask you about, you've done so much work in uh, training, yeah. drama training. yeah. Um, and I wondered what you you thought your, your, the, were the challenges for uh, young or emerging artists wanting to train or going through training, um and what what your thoughts were on the standards of training at the moment and and any advice to anybody thinking this is something I want to go and do this
2: is yes. something well to do. what what has happened really over the last it's really happened in the last twenty five years is that all the training in drama schools has been to some extent uh, taken over what a one level by the universities because people to get the funding, people now get degrees in acting. I mean when I was training, there was no question of there were no drama degrees at all. Now uh, you get So I, I act as consultant to lots of different universities validating these courses. And I think one of the problems is, is there's a dichotomy between the nature of a university degree, which requires a lot of private study and a lot of um, reading and so on, and an active tra- training course, which must be essentially practical, or most of it must be essentially practical. So I think what if I were looking to train as an actor, I would look at the, the drama college I was looking for and look at the, the actual component of the training as to what extent it is theoretical, what extent it is practical. There are some, uh, and I'm not going to tell you the names, obviously, because that would be very unprofessional, but have successfully, in my view, um, eradicated the need for lots of laborious book work but have a, a genuine intellectual content in their practical training. And I think that's the ideal. See, what, what, we, what we're looking for is a thinking performer. That, that's mm-hmm. the, the reflective practitioner is the jargon. Um, and so th- there's that. The other thing I would say, there's been a, a recent development in a number of places that are offering accelerated courses where you can do your degree in two years. In fact, I'm a consultant for one of the colleges that's doing that. Now, I think that's been a great idea because, in a way, you know, you do that work on your voice, for example, and then you forget it for six weeks, seven weeks in the summer. And you get out of practice, you go off and you earn your living, selling hamburgers or whatever you do, you know. What I would say, get, you keep yourself at peak condition like an athlete, Mm. And the way to do that is to look for accelerated courses. Uh, and there are some out there doing it really rather well. I, I think if you're looking around, you also want to look at the balance between the various areas. Um, my own particular interest now in training is in musical theatre, the, because it's the biggest single growing industry, as you probably realize. And unfortunately, all these sort of things like um, the talent shows on the telly. Convince everyone they could be a musical theater performer, which of course they can't, but that they, they think they can be. So you get a lot of a lot of musical theatre courses growing up. And again, there, I think the important thing is that these courses are going to encourage you to be a thinking performer. So, you know, you actually, for example, I, I have one or two colleagues who work on lyrics of songs, which they insist that young actors performers monologues before they even learn a single note of the music, because unless you actually inhabit the text, why are you going to bother to sing? Uh, And I've seen horror stories, I must admit, uh, of people who've got no idea what they're singing about or no idea what they're doing. In fact, I remember one audition I went to, and the chap came out and sang um, I have often walked down the street before, you know, song from my family. So I said to him, um, you're singing that song, um, where do you imagine yourself to be? And he said, on stage. I said, has it ever occurred to you walking down the street? Mm. That's where you just are. An
0: I- just an idea.
2: <laughs> yeah. Unbelievable. I mean, you know, I mean, so, yeah, I, I think the thing about training is um I think there's some superb training being offered. And I think it's kept at a very high standard by these university validations because they, they breathe very hard on down the necks of these colleges. They really do. I mean it's not easy. It's by no means a, a walk in the park getting a, you know, the course validated by a university. But I think the important thing, as I said, is you look at a balance between the thinking processes and the doing processes mm. and also i think it's actually the vital these days that even if you okay you're not after a lot of writing you do some reflection possibly in the form of writing because if you're a young actor you're going to one day have to write proposals you're going to have to write program notes you're going to have to write you know all sorts of stuff and if you can't do it your, your little theatre company you've set up with your friend or whatever it is you're going to do is going to be an absolute plot. You've got to have intellectual rigor, you know. So things like even acknowledging the proper writer of a play. I mean, I've actually seen students who have written about a play and I haven't mentioned who the playwright is. You'd be you would be amazed how often uh, you you know. You, and I've even seen program notes. Uh, of a performance where it doesn't even mention the name of the writer. You know, uh, just things like this. You've got to be rigor, I think. In that. That yeah, my... uh, you know, that's
0: one of my favorite words, actually. I think the thing about. Um... I think you're totally right about the balance of it. You know, there's something about rigour, there's something about discipline, there's something about focus. It yeah. just gives you the ground, just gives you that ground uh, work that will hopefully become the foundation of your practice. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the thing about the athlete is totally right. The, uh, you, the To do eight times a week, whether that be a musical or a Marlowe, or it's, yeah. it is a, it's a, it's a, it's a marathon. Of
2: it is, yeah. And it's, it's ridiculous to just stop <laughs> for ages. <laughs> Uh, and and do something else you know I mean no athlete would do that so uh, I think that there is a a lot of thinking going on along those lines that you know you could accelerate it and I mean I think that obviously for dancers it's another matter as well because they need to be young and they need to start very young so a lot of people start training at 16 or or before that you know Um, but for actors I mean uh, there's room for mature actors and all sorts of people you know can, can train as actors but but they do need to keep that instrument tuned you know, really, really well too, and not neglect re-
0: it. And I think that that's the thing is with actors, you are the instrument. Yeah, sure. So you yeah. know, where a musician might be able to look after their violin or the 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 thing that helps them do the thing, as an actor, you are. You well, are the. I, instrument.
2: I, I would I would say to them when they're preparing for the exam, look uh, an art. Person hangs their picture on the wall, and an English student hands in an essay. You hang yourself on the wall. Mm. You know, it's you, uh, and you are the performance. You know, and that's very demanding. Really, yeah. you know, and it, it needs training. Uh, very often it needs sympathetic training. I mean, what what I I despise more than anything else, and I I have come across it. Are teachers who say, Well, I suffered when I was being taught, so you're going to suffer too. You know, it's smart to be unpleasant. You. I, I can't stand that.
0: I'm yeah. not sure anyone works very creatively, no. positively, fruitfully no. under those conditions. No.
2: But yeah, I've encountered it in despite, Uh, You know, particularly through the dance world. You know, oh, I learned, I had to suffer, so you, you can suffer too.
0: <laughs> it's, hard, it's hard
2: enough. Yeah, quite. It's- Hard enough. Right. We don't need any more of that. It's about nurture, not about not about torture.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I think I I just sort of think break working out a play in a three-week rehearsal process, working out a state, that's hard enough. We don't need any of that negativity. Let let's let's push this thing right. up the hill together. Yeah. Um, what are you most looking forward to? Uh now the restrictions are easing.
2: <laughs> well, I am looking forward to actually meeting uh actors and going, resuming my work. Although I, I'm really, that's how I retired with it, but resume my work visiting colleges because I do find it very inspiring watching the new young generation. Mm. Um, I'm looking forward to that, but I'm particularly looking forward to the show I'm working on at the moment, which is a Edwardian piece actually, where I, we're celebrating some of the famous uh, actors of the Edwardian era, um, Dr. A Change. Uh, although there is a Shakespeare scene in it, but um, yeah, I'm fascinated by the links between people like. Um, uh, Lena Ashwell and H. B. Irving, the son of Sir Henry Irving, who that incidentally lived in Whitstable near where I live, and uh, so I've, and, and J. M. Barry who, and and uh, the Dorothy Baird, an actress who created the role of Trilby, created the role of Missus Darling in Peter Pan, and um, I've, I've been working to compile this 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 sort of Pop puree of Edwardian theatre, which I'm really looking forward to working with the company on that, and uh, hopeful some something will happen about. It. And I'm also enjoying not being chairman of the Marlow Society, um, <laughs> so I can get on with some of the more interesting parts of being interested in Marlow. And my wife, who's a, a genius at reading up all the research on Marlow, keeps my brain going with challenging questions about. What do I think about this? Oh yeah. So yeah, there's, there's a lot to look
0: forward to. And uh hopefully, Ken, you can act as a bit of a talent scout for us. So any oh, wait, of those. Do that? Yeah, any of those young actors out there who, you know, we think, yes, this is the next Marlowe lead. This is, you know, this is this <laughs> yes, is what well, this I, is what we need. No. This is no. what we need. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, this is where everything gets a bit strange, Ken. I'm gonna <laughs> I'm going to hand you over to Gavin for the 60 second challenge.
2: Oh, fine. Bloody hell. Well, well okay. Hello, Ken. <laughs> Hello there. What are uh, you trying to do on this time then? <laughs> well, the 60 second challenge
1: is a bit it's 60 seconds where we get to um, let the audience know a little bit more about you. Just some quick fire questions, off the cuff answers, okay. um, just a little bit of fun. Um, so, no pressure. Uh, um, I'm going to ask you some questions, Um, Ricky, we'll have a clock that'll show us uh, the 60-second countdown, Um, I'll ask you the questions as quickly as I can, if you can answer them as quickly as you can, and we'll count up your score at the end, and we'll add you to the leaderboard. Ricky has a horn of dreams, uh, and uh, as shown uh, oh, oh no, you're right. not showing yes. anything. <laughs> there it is. All right,
2: all right. <laughs> now you <laughs> might
0: you might recall this, Ken. This was in our production of Edward
2: II Yes, oh. I do remember. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> phone calls from it's babies and god knows what you have. <laughs> <after. laughs>
0: it's a Marlowe prop. You see? Oh, well, there you go. I'm sure he would disapprove.
1: Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, Ricky, will will uh, honk the horn at the end of the 60 seconds just to let us know that is the end. And um, we'll take your final answer and then we'll add up your score. Is that all okay, Ken?
2: That's absolutely fine.
1: Great. So, um, K- Ricky, are you ready? <laughs> Ken, are you ready? Yes. Yeah. Here we go. 60 seconds on the clock. Ken, what was the first theatre you saw?
2: The first theatre I saw was a play of um, the changing garden might be in palace of Paris a boy.
1: Amazing. Uh, tea or coffee? Tea. Uh, if you had to eat one thing for every meal going forward, what would you eat?
2: Uh, oh, sausages.
1: What's your favourite book?
2: Um, at the moment, it's probably...
1: Um, David Lodge's changing places. If you could instantly become an expert in something, what would it be?
2: Uh, an organist.
1: Beer or wine? Oh, wine. Movies or theatre? A theatre. What qualities do you value in people in, in, to whom you spend time with?
2: Uh, humility and warmth.
1: What are you currently reading?
2: Uh, I'm reading history of Edward
1: in England. What's the first career you dreamed of having as a kid?
2: Uh, a teacher
1: dog or cats? cat please. sweet or savory uh, savory there we go that's 60 seconds time is, up.
0: time is up the
2: air horn of mortimer
1: uh ken how many do you think you answered in 60 seconds
2: oh gosh about, is this part of the test as well no no <laughs> <laughs> i reckon probably answered about 15 questions
1: well, wow, you got 12. You got 12 huh? in the 60 seconds. So oh, nearly, well, yeah, <laughs> about about. I've there. not
2: slowed up too much then.
1: <laughs> no, no, you've done well, done well. You're definitely not at the bottom of the
2: leaderboard. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. I'm getting an old daughter now, really.
1: <laughs>
0: no, you did well. Thank you, Ken. Such a sport. Thanks so much. It's been lovely to see you, lovely to talk to you. Thank and you. Um, we we must keep the, the Marlowe flame alight and everything no. we can do, we're going to do. Um, So thank you so much for joining us. Great pleasure.
2: Thanks so much. Okay
0: and thank you listeners for tuning in we'll be back next week with another spotlight on podcast until then find out how you can get creative and get involved with our year of exploration by checking out our facebook page twitter profile at lazarus theater and there's bits and bobs on our instagram also at lazarus theater we've also got lots of links on our social media to the marlowe society so you can find out far more about the marlowe society and what they're up to all the details of course can be found on our website www.lazarustheatre.com I've been Ricky Dukes.
1: And I've been Gavin Harrington-Odedro.
0: Until next time, stay safe and stay well.
1: Lazarus Theatre Company is a not-for-profit organisation that relies on the generous support of our friends, angels and principal supporters. If you wish to support this podcast or any of the work Lazarus Theatre Company is doing, you can visit the Lazarus Supporters page on our website, lazarustheatre.com forward slash Lazarus hyphen supporters, or you can send any amount to paypal.me forward slash Lazarus Theatre. Every counts.
0: You have been listening to the Spotlight On podcast hosted by Ricky Dukes and Gavin Harrington-Odedra, produced by Lazarus Theatre Company. The music you've been listening to is composed by Bobby Locke and is from our 2016-2017 production of the Caucasian Chalk Circle by Bertile Brett.